Piano with Harriet Stubbs, Episode 1. Come on in, the music's lovely. Coming up in the programme, we've got the revolutionary genius of Bach and Beethoven, and we have suggestions for anyone new to classical piano. Then later, I'll be answering questions with my collaborator, producer, and recent convert to classical piano, Anthony. Hello, hi, and welcome to The Piano with me, Harriet Stubbs. I'm a classical concert pianist, and this podcast is an exploration of gorgeous music placed in the vibrant context of its time. I'm inviting you to share in what inspires my love and appreciation for classical music. In this episode, I've included music that you may recognise from Sex and the City. One of the most important things to me as an artist is placing classical music in spaces where it's not yet been. And often that's achieved by highlighting the context from which it came. This podcast series will, I hope, illuminate the relevance and universal language that music offers us. And in this first episode, I've included ideas that should be helpful to someone new to classical music. It doesn't matter at all what your musical background is, you're all very welcome here. Now, to the music. I'll just play a short extract from Beethoven's magnificent Moonlight Sonata. So that was the first part, or movement, of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. It's in a very romantic style, and perhaps one of the reasons it's still popular today is it's similar in form to a pop song. Listening to music live is the best way to experience it. Of course, I would say that because I'm a concert pianist. Live music is what I live for. When you're listening at home, the ideal is an environment with little or no background noise. That's because in classical music, the dynamic range, the volume from loud to soft, is huge. And that's especially true for the piano. Headphones or well-placed speakers are perfect. Now, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the Sex and the City spin-off and just like that. Listen out during the first episode where Mr. Big dies on the peloton, clutching his chest, having a heart attack. Meanwhile, Charlotte's daughter Lily is giving a recital playing the third movement of the Moonlight Sonata. The two scenes are intercut, going from one to the other. Let's hear it. Dramatic music for a dramatic scene. The music composed by Beethoven over 220 years ago. 
This third movement of the Moonlight Sonata, full of rage and fury, is less well known than the romantic first movement I played earlier. Huge contrast in a short space of time. All three movements have very different temperaments, yet they are all connected. Listen while I play a few bars of the second movement. It's a dance. And notice the complete change of mood and tempo as we go into the rage and fury of the final movement. first movement is in C-sharp minor, um, and the minor keys in Western music are typically associated with sadder quality or perhaps melancholy and tragedy. Uh, this is the sound of C-sharp minor. Now the second movement of the Moonlight Sonata is a dance and it is in D-flat major. And the major key signatures are associated with, say, the opposite of sadness, um, warmth and richness of colour. For the third movement, we return back to C sharp minor from here. And the notes C and D are side by side with one note in between, which is simultaneously C sharp in that context and D flat in that context. We could go into more detail, but that would be a different podcast. The point is, is that C-sharp and D-flat are the same note. Let's listen again. Here it is in the dance with the warmth of D-flat major. Here it is as C-sharp in the third movement, delivering tragedy and fury. And they are all connected by just that one note. For me, this genius with architecture, the connections and structure of the music, is a key element of Beethoven's brilliance. You could say that Beethoven did for architecture of music what Shakespeare did for the English language. Both gave us profound insights into the human condition. The Moonlight Sonata is one of 32 piano sonatas written by Beethoven. All are just as innovative in structure and taking sonata form forward. And Beethoven has enduring and wide appeal. You might have heard the first movement of Moonlight Sonata in all sorts of places, from TV commercials to TV dramas and so on. Now, let's move back in time to the 1700s and Johann Sebastian Bach. I've included Bach in this episode as he's another example of a composer whose creativity and contribution to music was revolutionary and still played today. Also in Sex and the City. Here is a short piece, a prelude, from Bach's work, The Well-Tempered Clavier. Thank you. 
the C major prelude of book one from Johann Sebastian Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier. This highly celebrated work, The Well-Tempered Clavier, was written in two volumes and consists of 48 preludes and fugues, two in every key. The prelude I just played is introductory, establishing the primary ideas. In Prelude 2, the fugue, which I'm about to play. In Prelude 2, the fugue, which I'm about to play, that develops those ideas and is in a different form. I'll explain in a moment. So the fugue has musical phrases which travel between different parts of the piano. It's not unlike a round, such as Ferrojaca, where one voice starts off and the next voice picks up the tune and continues independently. But everything fits beautifully together. In a fugue, the parts are like four singing registers, soprano at the top, alto, tenor and bass as the lowest. Typically, two parts are played in the right hand and two parts in the left hand when written for piano. So listen out for the tune starting, then getting picked up by the different voices. We start with the alto. Then the soprano comes in. There is a tenor. And then the bass. It's a conversation between the alternating parts. This style is called counterpoint, and the parts are said to be in dialogue with each other. Bach's idea to create the well-tempered clavier in a systematic way, writing pieces in every key, might seem somewhat repetitive. But, in Bach's hands, they really are a monument to his consistent and formidable creativity. Very much worth spending some time with. And, Bach's preludes and fugues are also bite-sized, so you only need a minute or two per piece. Perfect TikTok content. If you're interested, there's a wonderful recording of the well-tempered clavier by the insanely talented pianist Glenn Gould, a genius and a hypochondriac. He used to wear an oversized coat and gloves no matter what the weather. His 1963 recording on Columbia Masterworks is wonderful. His interpretations are always original and fresh. For contrast, there's a recording by Andras Schiff with ECM Records in 2012. It's completely different, but wonderful in its own way. And if you're interested in listening to the Beethoven sonatas in their complete form, Richard Good, with an E on the end, has just done a beautiful recording of all 32 sonatas. It's a four-disc collection, and I thoroughly recommend it. In this episode, we've looked at Bach's Preludes and Fugues, along with Beethoven's Piano Sonatas, because they're both real fixtures of the professional pianist's repertoire. They represent points in musical evolution that are groundbreaking while being recognisable pieces of music for everyone. And now it's time for me to answer your questions. So let me introduce Anthony, my collaborator, producer, and a recent convert to the joys of classical piano music. Hi. Well, we've uh, reached a bit where I ask you questions from our listeners, but as it's the first episode, we have no listeners' questions, so you have to make do with mine. I guess my first question is about how we listen to classical music. Yeah, so I, th I think for newcomers to classical music, 
there are so many different ways in which it's accessible now um through shorter segments to playlisting um and the digitalization of music um the playlist has really become the new album in so many ways and a lot of things such as meditation playlists and relaxing and revising all of these uh provide an environment where music specifically classical music becomes background music to another activity and so i think that that serves some music well but that to really have the experience of getting to know repertoire and becoming immersed in it um it can almost feel like an intrusion when there are passages of complexity when you're trying to do another activity and so i think there are sort of two different types of listening there is the background listening um and music that's appropriate for that and the full-on committed experience to going on a journey with it um and because of the way that music is distributed now it's so easy to have music recommended to you that's similar to the music that you've heard and this can really lead to expanding your knowledge very quickly however it can also be a confusing way to consume the music because it's out of context of its original narrative um say the album that it was from or the albums that we just referenced there one of the things i found is because i've been listening to much more classical piano music since we started working together um and it can be on streaming services quite quite tricky sometimes to find things because if you if i put in Moonlight Sonata, I might just get that first movement. But you were telling me the other day uh, um, a topic which I think is quite complicated and I don't fully understand yet. It's going to take me a little while. But you have the opus or is it opus number? Opus. Opus number. So the opus number is the number that that work is within the entirety of that composer's works chronologically when it's an opus number it's an unnamed cataloger um but many composers are opus numbers some like mozart um, and bach have initials before them instead to represent the same thing so when you're talking about the opus number of a work you're talking about it in the context of all instruments that that composer wrote for not just the piano right so that includes any choral works uh, and everything is the or so sonata i think moonlight sonata number 14 opus 27 so but if i search for um uh, beethoven opus 27 number two i should get me to all three movements it will yes great um because that is the thing isn't it you know there's that first movement which is so widely known that people don't even know that they know it that's right um, and that third movement, what you were saying as well about listening to it as background music, that's not background music, is it? No, and I think that's why the first movement is so popularly known because it's so easy to put in the playlisting context of background music um, and the work in its entirety, particularly the last, is a much more immersive experience. But if you start by listening to the first movement, not as background music, the continuation will make sense. 
And earlier you were saying about how Beethoven joined those three very different movements. Yes. Uh, So the outer movements are in C-sharp minor and the middle movement is in D-flat major. Um, C-sharp and D-flat are the same note. And what's so interesting about that harmonically and therefore in character is that D-flat major has such warmth and it's that dance movement and lightheartedness. Um, but that very same note in the context of C-sharp minor, of which both the outer movements are, creates an entirely different feel and couldn't be further away in character. And what I found as well is once I'd listen properly, just nothing else going on, just listening to that third movement, I found other Beethoven piano works more accessible? Yes, I think that all of our ears are evolving and the more we expose them to, the further we want to delve into the complexities of of classical repertoire. So what what sounded to me at the start, you know, if I was doing something else, like some cleaning or something, sounded a bit like a wall of noise and I would switch over and listen to some contemporary music, actually um, now has become more accessible. And you've never had this because you started playing classical music when you was at three or two and a half? Yes, that's right. Um, Yes, I actually can't listen to classical music as background music because... I can't not concentrate on it immediately. It's it's incredibly distracting for me. <laughs> so if you're walking through a shopping mall and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and boxing's yeah, yeah it takes over the whole experience. So my next question then is, uh, we actually met while we were swimming at the Serpentine Swimming Club in London's Hyde Park. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I very quickly discovered you have uh, a real love of... Um, the oceans, in fact, you you uh, you're a dive master, is it? Dive master, and uh, what I find really exciting is free diving because I I follow free divers on Instagram. That's that's my connection with it. Um, how how does this relate to your piano music? I think it is the antithesis of the music industry in so many ways and is such a healthy balance um diving and free diving um swimming provide such perspective in what is such a hyper focused profession to be able to see things in the perspective of a much larger picture is so helpful I get where you, I get where you're coming from. So just simply being on a breath hold dive, because uh, I know you go out with basking sharks. So- Scotland is it? Up. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you dive with sharks, yeah, and that I can see a connection with the music industry there, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's unkind to sharks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. And um, I see. So it's like a. It's almost like a counterpoint to use something. To, to absolutely yeah absolutely um and makes me a healthier musician i think yeah yeah even though you have to to get away from your instrument while you're doing it yeah that's the point <laughs> <laughs> um so 
talking about being a healthy musician when the the seemed like the world had become unhealthy with um, the pandemic um, and you were you found yourself unable to get to New York I think you were planning to go and you were locked down here in Kensington yeah um, and you were routinely practicing and you had your windows open and you knew people were coming to listen outside and you made it a thing yeah so I'm based in New York and I had come over to London for what I thought was going to be a quick trip in March of 2020 um and I think like most people at the beginning of lockdown it was impossible to imagine the length of time that the pandemic was going to go on for and also how to be useful during that time unless you were in medicine so I found the first few weeks I was really trying to think of a way to do something that might uplift people and also to stay engaged with my craft. And when I go back to the UK during the summer periods to learn repertoire for the autumn season, I usually have people that gather outside sometimes um, walking past and so I decided to deliberately start opening my window at the same time every day and giving a concert for sort of 20 minutes um, at 5 p.m. And immediately people started coming and got used to the routine. Then I started advertising that I was doing it and it continued to grow. And you, I think it was, you gave, in the end, it was 250 consecutive days of concerts. Yeah. And, and as you were explaining to me, you didn't just rattle these off. You, um, you, 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 you'd finish one concert and then you'd start preparing your your repertoire. Now I've got used to this word. <laughs> repertoire is pieces I play. That's the pieces all. you play, <laughs> or it's the pieces that are going to be in a concert or a performance. That's right, or that I've previously learned and are able to be brought up. And now I'm down with you. I can say rep. yeah I get it so you you had these um the the the, you did these concerts now I mean it was a great give and you got some great crowds outside and everything like that um without digging too much into your psyche were were you doing this um was there a part of this where you're doing this for yourself of course I mean I think that it was all of us needed connection during that time um and it was in a safe way people were outside I was inside and that's a very difficult thing to achieve to have interactions with people in person but it be safe um and I think we practice for ourselves but there are always concerts ahead somewhere and with this looming reality that it was going to be a long time until we gave concerts in a concert hall again I felt that having regular performances would keep specifically my performance chops up, not just my practice chops, and also enable me to really internalize the repertoire that I wanted to learn for my next album in a way that only performances can do. And um, in the in old parlance, we'd have said, you'd have gone crazy if you weren't doing it. Nowadays, we'd say, actually, as well as being this wonderful gift to the local community, um, it was also supporting your mental health, we could say. Yeah. 
And I hope other people's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you like to put other people first. I like that. Um, now then, there's the other feature of this, um, which uh, we haven't mentioned yet. It was the Queen's Birthday Honours Year. And you were, you were mentioned in the Queen's Birthday Honours for services to music, was it? Or services to the local community? Uh, and you were awarded a British Empire Medal. Yeah, that was a really lovely surprise. By the uh, Queen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was really, really uh, exciting. I was quite excited. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I've been teasing you since then, calling you Lady Harriet, which is technically not correct. I know that. <laughs> or the Duchess of Kensington. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's wonderful. And, it, and it's nice to get the recognition because that was no small feat, 250 consecutive concerts. Thank you. Yeah, it was. Uh, there were days where I wasn't necessarily in the mood, but the act of doing it felt amazing. Yeah, and I'm glad. I know, and I, I've seen I've seen pictures of well socially distanced crowds. It's really quite strange. It looks like something from a sci-fi movie movie because everyone's standing apart from each other. But you know, and there was no traffic, so it didn't matter them standing in the road. It was great, great, great thing. Um, so my my last question then really is uh, what have we got to look forward to? What's coming up in future shows? So we're going to be looking at the turn of the century on two centuries. So the 18th to the 19th century and then the 19th to the 20th century. Uh, so the next couple of episodes will be about Beethoven and Schubert and how they bridged classical and romantic and the 18th to the 19th century and now it just remains for you to say the goodbyes yeah so it's the end of our first show and our first look at Bach and Beethoven if you're new to classical music I hope the examples have helped to illuminate the classical piano world in a way that sparks an interest and encourages you to listen more and I'd love to hear from you with any comments or questions. You can DM me on Instagram at Piano with Harriet Stubbs. Don't forget the double B in Stubbs and the S on the end. Or email info at harrietstubbs.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>